Hey, welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Derek. I am one of the pastors at Rock Hill. Uh, you can normally find me at Rock Hill in Superior. So if you were trying to escape me over there, I'm sorry, you're stuck with me here this morning. Uh, but I do want to just set something straight this morning. Uh, some of you refer to me as the superior pastor. And those are your words. Those are not my words. But um, I do want to ask you to stop using that title, just campus pastor and superior. And this is mainly for Kyle and Dean, um, just for their self-esteem. Um, let's just, yeah, keep it at a minimum. Uh, no, as, as uh, Mike mentioned, we are swapping places this week, but we are continuing. We're all doing the same sermon series, uh, The Thread. We're, we're continuing that this morning. We're in the 58th book of the Bible, the book of Hebrews. Uh, so we're getting close, right, to the end. And uh, before, we, before I get started, I want you to just turn your attention to the screen. We're going to watch an overview video about the whole book of Hebrews, and then we'll jump in this morning. The book of Hebrews was written by an unknown author around 65 AD. In particular, this letter was addressing Jewish Christians who were tempted to slip back into their former, comfortable religious identity in order to escape the persecution of Christ followers. The author reminds them that no matter the earthly circumstances, Jesus is fully worthy of worship and devotion. Drawing on the robust foundation of Old Testament scriptures, the author points to how God had revealed himself to his people throughout history and argues that the revelation of Jesus is the greatest of them all. God raised up Moses to lead his people out of slavery and to form a community of committed, covenant people. How much greater is the work of Jesus who led all of humanity to freedom? from the slavery of sin to a life of eternal community with God. The old sacrificial practices carried out by priests down the lines of Aaron and Melchizedek were a necessary but temporary means of justification. How much greater is the sacrifice of the flawless priest king Jesus, who once and for all time sufficiently paid for our sin and established a new covenant of grace and love. The letter of Hebrews points to Jesus as the clearest revelation of God's character and his affection toward us. Jesus is the hope for our future, the eternal and ever-present priest, the perfect sacrifice. Despite our earthly hardships, Jesus has proven himself over and over again to be wholly worthy of our devotion and faithfulness. Well, join me in prayer this morning. God, we thank you for another opportunity uh, to gather as your people in this place and open the revealed word of God that we have here uh, with the Bible and the book of Hebrews. And God, I just pray that your spirit would be present this morning, would illuminate the meaning of the text to our hearts and minds this morning and would inspire us to greater faith that we would leave here transformed by your word. So God, would you speak through me or in spite of me this morning, uh, but may your word uh, be impressed on our hearts and minds this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a famous story, which I did a little Google search. I don't know if it's a true story, to be honest with you, but it makes for a good illustration 
nonetheless. And the story goes that late one night, uh, there was a family in their house, the kids are asleep, and a fire breaks out in the house. And it pretty quickly uh, looks like it's going to be an all-encompassing, raging fire. So the family uh, makes their way outside. However, there's a boy stuck in his, in his bedroom on the second floor. Uh, he's awoken by noise and commotion. He's realizing, I can't leave my room. There's flames and fire. And so the boy was forced to escape out of his second-story window and onto the roof of the house. The father, who was making sure everyone got out of the house, didn't see the son, and so he's outside on the grass, and he finally sees his son up on the roof. And so he starts calling out to his son, hey, son, I'm, I'm down here. I'll catch you. Just jump. He knew the boy was going to have to jump to save his life. But see, from the boy's vantage point, all he could see was just raging flames, fire, smoke, and darkness. He was terrified, and rightly so, Right? But his father kept yelling, hey, son, just jump and I'll catch you. But the boy protested, daddy, I can't see you. And he said, it doesn't matter, son. I can see you. Just jump. Now that illustration, I think, gives a picture of faith. Today in the book of Hebrews, we're going to get a crash course on what faith is. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 11 of Hebrews this morning. So if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to chapter 11. But the context of our passage this morning is actually seen right before in chapter 10. So if you didn't know, Hebrews is likely a long sermon or series of sermons that was given to Jesus' followers who lived in the hostile context of first century Rome. So this is about as a pastor of a thing that I could do. I, I'm giving a sermon on a sermon. Uh, it doesn't, yeah, that's what pastors do. Anyway, uh, but these first century Christians, what they see all around them is suffering and persecution for their new faith in Christ. The original hearers of Hebrews, they're struggling to see God's plan. They're struggling to understand what's happening. They're like the boy on the roof, right? They can, they can faintly hear the encouragement and assurance of their father down below. But to be honest, they mostly just see darkness and flames and smoke. They're scared and doubting. So in chapter 10, the author is warning them of the dangers of falling away from the faith and there is begging them to just persevere and keep going. And then look at the last verse of chapter 10. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve souls. So that leads us right into our text this morning, which is Hebrews chapter 11, uh, where the author is going to elaborate on what faith looks like. Now, uh, you're going to have to buckle in, settle in. We're going to read all 40 verses of Hebrews 11 this morning. It's going to be a little long, but uh, if you are like the original audience, and you're feeling just beat down by the world, you need encouragement to keep going, I want you to just listen closely to the cadence of Hebrews 11 and see how you can be encouraged to have faith. All right, so here we go. Don't count my mistakes as I read here, all right? Uh, Hebrews 11, starting verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, 
through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named." He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that, he, that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward." By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? 
For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and women received back the dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That was a lot, all right? Um, I'm not going to be able to cover all 40 verses in depth this morning. That's pretty obvious. But uh, I do think as we look at the whole chapter, there is a simple big idea that we can come away with this morning. I think the big idea is this. Faith is believing and trusting in God for salvation through Jesus. It's the same for these people of old as it is for us today. Faith is believing and trusting in God for salvation through Jesus. And I'm going to try to follow the author's line of thinking this morning, and we're going to look at the past, the present, and future aspects of faith this morning. So first we'll look to the past, and we're going to see the encouragement of faith. And then second, we're going to look to the future. We're going to see the inspiration of faith. And then finally, we're going to take the past and the future, and then we're going to see the application of faith in the present. All right, so let's start by defining faith as we look to the past. The author of Hebrews starts chapter 11 by giving us a quick, simple definition of faith. He starts in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So assurance, meaning a certainty or a confidence in a promise that's made to you, and conviction, meaning a firmly held belief in something. And notice in verse 1 that this assurance and conviction is in things hoped for and things not seen. In verse 3, I think we start to see a little more clearly what the author means. I think he gives an example of this. He says, By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. You see, in life, there are things that you see, right? There are things that are visible, things that you can observe, and from that, things you can reasonably deduce and learn. But the author this morning is saying, that's not all there is to the universe, Uh, There are still things unexplainable by human logic, reason, and sense perception. In our modern era, we are told that faith stands opposed to reason and logic. The two are incompatible. Uh, Richard Dawkins, he's a famous atheist and evolutionary biologist. Look what he says about faith. Faith is the great cop-out the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. 
This is the dominant worldview in the West, that we Christians, we take leaps of faith, or we have blind faith. Now, uh, Dawkins's view here, I think, can easily be dismantled. Uh, for example, there isn't enough scientific evidence to prove the Big Bang Theory or to prove that humans have evolved from primordial soup. And then from the Christian side, we could point to science and prove that the Bible is accurate in its descriptions of the universe, in its descriptions of the origin of humanity or historical events like a global flood. But see, my view actually would be that both sides don't fully know the truth, and we likely never will. And so I would argue that we both, we have faith in what we believe is true. Now, going into Dawkins there was a bit beside the point, but I think his question remains, is faith a cop-out? Do sin's perception, reason, and rationality stand at odds with the Christian faith? Are they incompatible? I think what the author of Hebrews is saying this morning is no. No, they're not. We do have legitimate reasons in, uh, to have faith. We do have uh, reasons to, to consider our faith as rational. But our author this morning, he sees reason and rationality as foundational blocks that only get you so far. He's going to say that faith actually rests on top of reason and rationality. Faith takes you beyond the limitations of reason and to a place that reason can never go. Now, with that said, the author is going to give us numerous commendable examples of faith as reasons to be encouraged, as reasons to have faith. So as we look back at these cases, we're going to learn a bit more about what faith really looks like. So if you're new to the church and to the Bible, you're going to have to bear with us here for a moment. Uh, the author of Hebrews, he is surveying the Old Testament, and he's pulling out these familiar stories that are familiar to Christians, and, but he's giving us a different perspective this morning on those stories. And so whether you know them or not, I think you can get, come away with this main point that the author wants you to take away, and that is as you go back and you read these stories of the Old Testament, uh, what was happening then with those people in those days is the same that happens now, today. Uh, that when you read these stories, these are human beings. These are not superheroes, right? There are murderers in this list. There are prostitutes in this list. There are adulterers in this list. These are just ordinary people, but, but they did also display moments of extraordinary faith. They had assurance and conviction in God, and God commends them for it. All right, so we're going we're gonna to do a quick run-through, rapid fire, but we're going to see if we can better understand what faith looks like uh, as we look back at the old days, all right? So the author starts in verse 4 with the very first generation after Adam and Eve. He says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So faith for Abel was giving a sacrificial gift to God. Abel didn't know if there was provision or forgiveness awaiting him on the other side of his giving, but he trusted God would provide for his ultimate needs. And notice, too, that it wasn't so much about what Abel gave, uh, both Abel and his brother Cain gave acceptable gifts. Abel's was just more acceptable. 
right? But faith for Abel was about the conviction in his heart to trust God by giving his best and leaving the outcome up to God. All right, we're going rapid fire. We're going to move on to Enoch. Enoch was next in the list. Now, from the book of Genesis, we know very little about Enoch. All it says in Genesis is that Enoch walked with God, and then he was not there because God took him. That's all we know. But the author of Hebrews elaborates on this a little bit in verse 5 and 6. He says uh, that Enoch was commended as having pleased God. And in verse 6, he continues, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So faith for Enoch was pleasing God by drawing near, by seeking and believing God. And what's noteworthy about that, I think, is that these are all relational words. You see, faith is about a relationship with God, your creator and sustainer. Next mentioned in the list was Noah in verse 7. Now, you're likely familiar with the famous story of Noah and the ark that he built, right? Uh, But we read that Noah, he wasn't given a promise from God, but a warning. And that it was out of reverent fear, we read, that he constructed the ark. So faith in God for Noah is partially a healthy fear of God's justice and wrath and the fact that God is going to hold everyone accountable in the end. You see, that's what happened in the flood, right? Noah's faith stood in stark contrast to the rest of the world. They chose not to believe God, but Noah was faithful. The world was condemned and Noah was commended. How are we doing? I told you we're going to go rapid fire here, right? Uh, Let's look at a couple more to see what faith is. Look at Abraham in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So faith for Abraham was obeying God's call in his life, even when it meant leaving everything he knew and was comfortable with. Abraham left his family, he left his home country, and he followed God to a new place. And what mattered to Abraham was not where he was, but that God, the creator of the universe, was there with him. And then multiple times for Abraham and his wife, Sarah, faith was trusting God to do the impossible. Look at verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So there's two things going on here. Uh, First, Abraham and Sarah were unable to have children into their 90s. They're in their 90s, right? When God tells them, you're going to bear a son, a son of promise. And from that son, there's going to be a whole nation of people. Uh, This is an impossible situation, right? Uh, Bear a child in your 90s. But they trusted God, and they eventually did have Isaac. And then, curiously here, God asked Abraham to offer up that son Isaac as a sacrifice. I mean, this is another impossible situation. You're asking a father to sacrifice and kill his own son. But look what the author says in verse 19 about Abraham. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. 
So you see, faith here for Abraham and Sarah is trusting in the promises of God even when you're in impossible situations. Abraham understood what Jesus later taught, that with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And God did intervene. He did provide a substitute sacrificial lamb in place of Isaac, and God kept his promise. Next in the list, uh, the author brings up Moses. Remember Moses. Uh, He was miraculously and providentially uh, grew up in Pharaoh's household in ancient Egypt. Moses had everything. He had a good education. He had wealth. He grew up and had power in the Egyptian empire. And then we read in verse 24 that by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So for Moses, faith was not fearing other men, even Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at the time. Uh, Faith was choosing to identify with God and his people and then denying himself worldly pleasures and power. Faith for Moses was enduring through many trials. Now, this is a lot, right? We we could do this for every character in this list. But I want to just stop for a moment and just ask, man, can any of you relate to these situations? Have you ever been in moments like these characters have been in? Have you ever thought to yourself, man, God, I, I don't know how we're going to pay the bills at the end of this month. God, I don't feel like you're close to me right now. God, I feel like you're leading us into a new season, but that would mean leaving everything I know and love. God, I sent you, you want me to go this way, but that would mean I have to end these relationships. I have to let go of the influence that I have. But what about God? I I just don't see a solution here. I don't see a way out. I don't see an end. You're like the boy on the roof. I hear your voice, Dad, but I just don't see it. I don't, all I see is smoke and flames. It's dark. Has anybody been there? See, that's where these first century Christians are, the original audience of Hebrews. And the author is reminding them, and but also you and I today, to be encouraged. If that's how you feel, you are in a long line of people who came before you and faced similar situations or worse. You see, they were commended for their faith and they saw God be faithful to them. That's the encouragement of our faith. We look back at these past examples, but as we do that, uh, we start to realize in our text today that The inspiration for these people, their faith, it came from their eyes looking forward to the future. So what motivates you to endure through trials? Uh, What convinces you that what you're going through is worth it in the end? What makes your faith rational? Let's look now at how uh, uh, the author shows us what the inspiration of faith was for these people. 
Now, in this sermon series called The Thread, we have been tracking this meta-narrative that is the overarching storyline of the Bible, and it culminates in Jesus, but the meta-narrative follows the path of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So this is the idea that God created the world and everything in it, humans included. And in the beginning, there was harmony between man and God and between man and creation, and everything was good. That's creation. But then it was humans, right, who chose to rebel against God. They introduced the curse of sin and death into the world. So sin has marred both humans and creation. Sin has brought both death and destruction. That was the fall. The plan of redemption started immediately after the fall when God promised that a human offspring would one day come. There was going to be one who comes and reverses the curse of sin. He restores humanity's relationship with God. He's going to make all things right and good. And so as we trace this thread of redemption through the Bible, there was progressive revelation as to what exactly that would look like. The characters in Hebrews 11 this morning that we've been talking about, they lived at various points along that timeline. And what the author is showing you this morning is that their faith was inspired not by what they saw at whatever point they are at in the timeline. Their faith was inspired by the end hope and the complete restoration that's coming in the end. They didn't have a nearsighted hope. Their inspiration came by what they could see far off on the horizon. So, for example, Abraham, we read, obeyed God, and he did go to a foreign land. But let's be honest. Uh, It says that Abraham lived in tents. There were enemies that didn't want Abraham in that land. So it wasn't all positive for Abraham. Or with Moses, we read, he displayed incredible faith. But remember, it says that he was mistreated with the people of God. He had angry King Pharaoh chasing him down, trying to kill him. And Moses had faith. God led him through the Red Sea on dry land, we read. But remember, on the other side, he lived in the desert for 40 years. He never got to go into the promised land. You see, their hope wasn't in their present circumstances. In the present, they saw a mix of good and bad, right? Remember how the author ended chapter 11 this morning? Just, he was just listing off all the stories he didn't have time to cover, and, and we don't either. But I want him to just quickly look at the end results of these and show you it's a mixed bag. Look at verse 32. There were some happily ever after stories, right? And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. So some of it was good. But then he keeps going. There's some not-so-happily-ever-after stories, starting in verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy." wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. 
You see, these people were all commended for their faith, both groups, the one that ended well and the ones that seemingly ended bad. And the author tells us they both had faith because their eyes were fixed on the far off horizon where they saw hope in a fully restored creation and a restored relationship with God. Look at how he said it in verses 13 to 16. All these people, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You see, what the author is saying is that in this lifetime, these people did not receive the ultimate restoration. But that doesn't mean that the ultimate restoration isn't coming, right? The, the inspiration for their faith was the assurance and conviction of things not seen, right? They were convinced that God was going to restore heaven and earth one day, that they would uh, one day spend eternity with him there forever. So they viewed their present circumstances in light of the future hope that they had. This is why the author said about Moses in verse 25 that Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You see, it's a nearsighted view that tells you that your faith is irrational. You guys are being tortured, you're being mocked, you're being sawn in two. Is your faith really worth it? You guys, you only have one life to live. Like, why are you going through with this? Why are you putting up with this? But it's the far-sighted view that tells you that your faith is totally rational. Uh, th these are just momentary afflictions in light of what's coming in the future. And so, yes, I will trade the temporary pleasures of the world for the eternal reward of heaven. It reminds me of a student who sets out to be a doctor, right? Uh, the nearsighted view would tell that student, you're really missing out, right? You're, you're missing out on intramural sports, the, the parties we're having, uh, all the social activities and clubs. Like, you could be having so much fun, right? But the student, he stays fixated on the horizon, right? He knows the greater joy is being faithful to complete his degrees so that why? In the end, he will be able to, to help more people, make more of an impact, make more money, and I'm sure he'll catch up on whatever he missed out on, right? But let me ask you, Christian, this morning, do you view your life like that? Are you fixated on your current circumstances and feel like you're missing out on life? Or do you have an assurance and conviction of how glorious the new heaven and new earth will be to the point that you're willing and ready to endure whatever this life has for you if it means eternity with God in heaven? Do you view your life like that? You know, I think the author of Hebrews, he really takes all of this in chapter 11 and he starts to summarize it at the beginning of chapter 12. Uh, so what's the takeaway for these first century Christians who are staring at persecution, they're debating leaving the faith? 
What's the takeaway? What's the application of faith for you and I this morning uh, who have trials and tribulations of our own? Look at chapter 12 of Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, the author is saying that, yes, we do look back, and we are encouraged by those who have run the race before us. And, yes, we keep our eyes forward and remember the prize at the end, a restored heaven and earth, uh, and we, we uh, run our race But in the present, the author is saying what you need to do is you need to lay aside the weight and sin and temptation of the world that is hindering your faith. And you have to endure. You have to run your race. You have to have faith. But I want to camp out here the rest of the morning because I want to know practically how do we do this? It sounds good in theory. We want to be faithful, but man, the weight of life is heavy, is it not? You know, as I mentioned at the start when I was talking about Richard Dawkins, I don't think any human being is neutral when it comes to faith. We're all putting our faith and trust in something. And so what I want you to understand this morning is that this world, which is run by Satan, the great deceiver, this world is making promises to you and appealing to your heart each and every day. That every decision you make, no matter how big or small, is ultimately a faith decision. You see, you are made promises by the world about what will fulfill you, what will satisfy you, what will make you happy. So for example, uh, there's the promise of control. The world tells you that if you can just control your schedule, control your finances, control your relationships, don't let anyone or anything control you, then you will find satisfaction, prosperity, and happiness. Or there's the promise of comfort. Uh, The world tells you that you have every right to do what's best for you right now in this moment because your happiness is what's most important. And so you, do, you, you binge watch TV shows, you experiment with drugs and alcohol, you sleep around with people, you watch pornography, you do whatever you feels good in the moment. Or there's the promise of appearance. The world tells you that if you can just impress your supervisor, break into that friend group, get your spouse's attention, or just please all the people around you, then they will accept you, love you, and respect you. But here's the problem with each of those. The problem with those pursuits is they become a crushing weight to you. They they can't deliver on their promises, and you're the one left empty, miserable, and alone. The author of Hebrews is pleading with you, lay aside those weights. Be free of those temptations. But how? How do we do that? You see, the way that you have faith The way that you endure, the way that you run your race is you look to Jesus. You trust his life, his death, and his resurrection. You believe in his promises. You keep your eyes fixated on Jesus. It's the same for them back then as it is for us today. They look forward to Jesus. And the author says that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of your faith. 
Jesus is the founder of your faith, the foundation of your faith. You see, Jesus was the offspring that God uh, promised to Abraham, uh, to Adam and Eve, who crushed Satan and is reversing the curse of sin. On the same mountain where Abraham offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice, Jesus was the substitute lamb provided in place of you and me. Just like Abel was innocently killed by his brother, Jesus was innocently slain, and his blood cries out not for your condemnation, but to set you free. Just like Moses, uh, Jesus delivered us from the bondage of sin, and he stands as our mediator between God and man. He restored our relationship with your creator forever. You see, Jesus was the one the people of old ultimately looked to for hope and restoration. But Jesus is also the perfecter of our faith. You see, Jesus left you, if you're a Christian in the room, he left you with the Holy Spirit who empowers you to cast aside every weight and sin so that you can run your race. Jesus did ascend up to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God where he is on his throne ruling and reigning. Jesus said he was going to heaven to prepare a place in his house for those who have faith in him. And you see, we look forward, we keep our eyes on the horizon because Jesus said that he will come back. He is going to take the faithful with him so that we can be where he is. You see, it's the same for you and I today as it was for the people of old. We still look to the horizon in hopes of Jesus, that one day he's going to restore all things. Jesus frees you from the weight of sin. He frees you from the promises of the world because he makes promises of his own to you. You see, because Jesus reigns and is in control, I don't need control. Because Jesus truly satisfies, my comfort right now isn't what is most important. Because Jesus approves of me, I don't obsess over my appearance or approval from others. You see, it's the same back then uh, for the people of old as it is for us today. We have a choice to make. Do we trust the promises of the world or the promises of Jesus? In the seemingly mundane decisions of everyday life, Christian, the encouragement of Hebrews 11 today is to take the far-sighted view, cast aside the weights of the world, uh, join in on the long line of imperfect people before you who have struggled and doubted and have faith in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Keep your eyes fixated on Jesus. And Hebrews 11 says, you will endure. You will receive the reward in the end by faith. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your word is timeless and timely. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would press in the the meaning and application of this text this morning, that we would view every decision we make every day as a faith decision, that we would realize the world is making us promises and we need to trust in the promises of God. We pray that your spirit would empower us to do that, that by faith we would endure through trials and tribulations, that we would run our race faithfully, that we would be next in line of these heroes of the faith. They're heroes not because of what they did, but because they were 
faithful to see you be faithful to them. Lord, I pray that we would see that we have the opportunity to testify of your faithfulness to those around us. So Spirit, help us to have faith, to trust your word and promises and apply this text to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.